This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Okay, good evening everyone. Good to see you. Thank you for being here. For those of you who might be visiting, my name is Beck Taylor. I'm privileged to serve as Whitworth's 18th president and the moderator for tonight's conversation with Ali Norani, who is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. We're very grateful to have him with us. In just a moment, yes, let's give him a round of applause already. Thank you, thank you very much, and uh, good night. <laughs> I will give uh, Ali a more formal introduction in just a moment. The format for tonight's uh, session and our time together is uh, Ali and I are going to engage in a back and forth question and answer for about 45 minutes or so. And then uh, as we're talking, though, I would encourage you to be thinking about questions that you would like to ask, because uh, when we're done with our Q&A, we'll pass around the mic and you'll have an opportunity to ask your questions. So we've got lots of time tonight, a very generous uh, allotment of time for us to discuss some very important issues. Before we get started, though, tonight, uh, I want to give a couple of shout outs to folks who have made this evening possible. Uh, Ali's uh, visit with us is sponsored by Whitworth's Office of Church Engagement, and I want to thank uh, Director Terry McGonigal and the entire staff of the OCE. Let's thank them. And from our Office of Spiritual Life, uh, the Reverend Mindy Smith was also instrumental in making today possible, so thank you. We appreciate that. Okay, well, um, Ali Norani has been with us all day long. Some of you maybe have seen him in some other venues. I know he taught in Dr. Lee's class this morning. Uh, he met with some students over lunch. He and I recorded a podcast. He's had several coffees with various groups, so yep. we've worked you very hard today. I'm highly caffeinated. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, let me introduce uh, Ali uh, very briefly. Ali Norani is executive director, as I mentioned, of the National Immigration Forum, which is an advocacy organization promoting the value of immigrants and immigration. He grew up in California as the son of Pakistani immigrants. Ali uh, quickly learned how to forge alliances among people of wide-ranging backgrounds, a skill that I know has ex uh, served him extremely well as one of the nation's most innovative uh, coalition builders in this area. Prior to joining the National Immigration Forum, uh, Ali was executive director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, and he's also served in leadership roles within various public health and other environmental organizations. In 2015, Ali was named a lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He holds his Master's of Public Health from Boston University, and he's a proud undergraduate from the University of California at Berkeley. He appears regularly on cable news channels such as CNN, Fox News, and NPR. I'll let you decide which one is uh, nicer to mm -hmm. Ali at the end of our talk. I will say this, I was in Washington, D.C. last week on Capitol Hill, and uh, as often at the end of the day when you're just vegging, I'm laying in bed in my hotel room flipping through TV channels, and uh, I flipped right through Fox News, but I saw Ali's face, and sure enough, he was being interviewed right there live by Tucker Carlson. We might 
talk about that interview a little okay. bit more later. Is, is um, this going to be Redux? <laughs> <laughs> no, I promise okay, you. Okay, that's not. good. Um, let's see. Uh, Ali lives uh, in Washington, D.C. He is the author of a book uh, entitled There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcame Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American Immigration. And it was published just earlier this year or last year by Prometheus Books. And I've got a copy of it here. And I think Robin has copies of it out in the foyer. If you're interested, I would certainly highly recommend it to you. Would you please join me in giving a warm Whitworth welcome to Ali Noorani. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you again for being thank here. Thank you for uh, engaging our community uh, so vigorously and faithfully today. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up at Whitworth today. Sure. So I got on a plane in Portland uh, yesterday morning. Um, so uh, uh, a little bit of my story, I guess. And um, my parents came from Pakistan in 1971. I was, uh, and they came as physical therapists because of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. And uh, um, I was born in Santa Cruz, California, and uh, we really grew up in Salinas. My dad ended up moving to Salinas because at that point there was only one other physical therapist uh, office in Salinas. And Salinas was kind of a unique place because, you know, growing up I grew up with the South Asian community of uh, my two sisters and my parents and me, uh, which meant that I grew up in a very diverse community where most of my friends were either kids of farm workers or kids of farm owners. Um, and it was us. And what I learned early on in life is working across lines and uh, getting to know people. Fast forward, I ended up in D.C. in 2008 um, to run the National Immigration Forum and have had just an incredible opportunity to work with faith, law enforcement, business leaders across the country to advance a more constructive approach to uh, America's immigration system. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, when we think about national immigration discourse today, few topics are as divisive and fractured as immigration. We can't even agree on language. Uh, are you an illegal alien or an undocumented immigrant? Are you a dreamer or an amnesty seeker? Why has immigration risen to the top of the list of issues about which Americans so fundamentally disagree? I think Americans have always disagreed about immigration. And I'm going to really start disagreeing with this microphone very quickly. Um, sorry, I have mutant ears, so just, things never work quite out. Um, so you go back over the, over the history of the United States, uh, back to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, uh, to the National Origins Act of 1924, uh, to everything that happened with the Bracero program in the 50s. These were all incredibly pivotal moments in our history as a nation where the US, our, our population turned against the other, even if the other was only one, two generations removed. Uh, so where we are now is in some ways no different from where we've always been, but it's also very different. Um, I think it's different now because the, the you know, when somebody watches news every evening, they see a family fleeing persecution and war in a boat crossing the Mediterranean. And the, the, the tension, the, the desperation in that family's eyes cuts right through the television screen. But what happens is that the person who's watching that news segment 
thinks that that family in that boat fleeing Syria is going to be their next door neighbor in two weeks. So and it's not different because there's always been that tension in kind of the role of America in the world, but it is very different in that things just move so much more quickly. And people and information uh, and, and threats and opportunities feel much closer than I think they ever have. And that, I think, drives our understanding or our misunderstanding of immigration um, in ways that I think we're just only beginning to, to come to terms with. I'm sure my uh, recollection of an involvement around immigration issues is to some extent a function of my own privilege in society, not having to worry about some of those issues. Um, and certainly you're correct that immigration has been a topic of conversation in political and economic circles for some time. But what is it about the last, say, three or four years mm -hmm. where, I mean, I don't think this was the topic of conversation at Whitworth five or six years ago, yeah. the way it is today. What is unique about our time in the, in the American mm -hmm. story? Why, why has okay. immigration risen to the top? Well, I think, first of all, um, as the country has become more diverse, it's not just more diverse in California or New York or Florida. You know, now the fastest growth in the foreign-born population is in the southeast. You know, I know in the Spokane area, we've seen, you've seen a growing level of diversity in the schools and throughout the, the region. Um, and that wasn't happening 10 years ago. It wasn't happening eight years ago. It's really a, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a phenomenon, it's a reality of the last five years. And those demographic changes are challenging us. They're challenging those of us who have been in a community for decades, and they're challenging us who are coming to a community in, uh, more recently. And what I've found is that all of us have to change as a result. And do we have the leadership within our communities to help us navigate that change? And I think that uh, um, a lot of us grew up thinking that our politicians would help us lead that change. But as our politics have changed and have become even more divisive and polarizing, it's harder and harder for our elected official, and I'm talking from a city councilor to uh, a member of Congress to the president to help a country or a community navigate that change. So I think that, and what I ended up writing about, and I think what we do as an organization is to find those leaders in a community, the pastor, the police chief, the professor, uh, uh, the business owner, to help communities navigate that change. Because now that change is happening in places that uh, you know, we never expected it would. In your book, in the first chapter, really setting the stage, uh, you talk about a fateful winter day in 2010 when the United States Senate was taking up two pieces of very different legislation, though both controversial at mm -hmm. the time. Uh, one was the, the Dream, Dream Act. The other was Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The Senate was taking up both of these uh, issues on the very same day. You kind of had an epiphany yep. that day about how you might approach discussing immigration uh, from then on. Say a little bit more sure. about that. And um, so let me paint the picture here a little bit. Um, over the course of, of 2010, it was a midterm election year, meaning that you know Congress was up for you know everybody everybody in the House was up for re-election, much like what 2018 will be. And on that Saturday, I think it was December 17, 2010, or December 18, 2010, these two pieces of legislation were up for, for a vote. In the morning, the DREAM Act, which I'm sure everybody knows, it's the legislation that would grant legalization of past citizenship for young people. In the afternoon, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which would allow uh, members of the armed services to serve 
uh, uh, regardless of sexual orientation. Now, we didn't have a dog in the fight uh, of don't ask, don't tell. But at the end of that day, I realized that we who fought for the DREAM Act, we lost. And those who were advocating for the repeal of don't ask, don't tell, they were successful. So I remember telling, you know, after that afternoon, uh, telling a friend of mine at the Methodist church right across the street from the Senate that we're going to do something differently next time. And I started to look backwards over 2010. And I realized that those of us who were advocating for the DREAM Act, we had a purely political strategy. We registered voters. We got them to the polls. We made sure that Democrats want, that were supportive of our issues won the day. We made the case to the American public that the DREAM Act was a political necessity. Those who were advocating for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they never talked about politics. They made a case to the American public of what it means to serve your nation openly and freely. They had a cultural strategy and we had a political strategy. Uh, they won, we lost. So for us at the National Immigration Forum, we decided that if we're going to win, whether it's something as important and, as, and discreet as the DREAM Act or something as broad and important as comprehensive immigration reform, we needed to get out of our comfort zones. And we needed to, as we came to put it, um, meet people where they are, but just not leave them there. So this revelation that uh, true immigration reform is more about culture and values than policy and politics. Mm -hmm. From then on, how did you really begin to reshape your strategy? your on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground strategies yep. for generating the kind of outcomes that you want? Well, it, in some ways, it's a very basic strategy. Um, now, keep in mind, in 2010, 2009 and 10, it was a moment where you know Obama was in office, obviously. Democrats ran both the House and the Senate. It was kind of the progressive heyday. You know, progressives, we thought we were going to win everything. Obviously, that didn't work out so well. Um, but what I did is we looked at, as I looked at that map of the vote in December of 2010, and I realized that the least amount of political support for the DREAM Act was in the southeast, kind of Florida to the Bible Belt, to the Midwest, kind of Texas up, up to the Mountain West, which is, you know, Arizona, Utah, up to Idaho, and really even this part of the, the state of Washington. And so that was our, that was our targets. You know, these are the places where we needed to do work. So then I asked the question, okay, if we need to move the politics of immigration in these regions, how do you do that? There's not the capacity of the immigrant community. There's not an uh, immigrant rights kind of base to work with. So the second map we looked at was um, uh, the number of adults who identify as evangelical Christian. Lo and behold, in the same, same three regions, the southeast, the midwest, and the mountain west, it was the highest number of adults who identify as evangelical Christian. Okay. Then we looked at law enforcement. Same three regions had the highest density of state and local law enforcement, which is kind of surprising because you know, these are not necessarily highly populated states, but there were states that had a high presence uh, uh, um, of law enforcement. And then I asked the question, okay, how do we measure what's the impact of business? And it turns out these same three regions had the fastest growth of the foreign-born population, in essence a proxy for an immigrant workforce. All we did is overlap the maps. And really, since I would say February of 2011, the majority of our time and resources and organization has been working with Bibles, badges, and business in the 
southeast, the Midwest, and the Mountain West. And our basic value proposition that we, that we make is that if you hold a Bible, you wear a badge, or you own a business, you want a common sense solution to the immigration system. And then you go into, okay, how do you get there? But basically, I was looking at these maps and saying, it doesn't make sense to, to be working anywhere else. So I introduced you as an uncommonly talented coalition builder. I've seen the coalitions you've developed among business leaders, uh, faith leaders, and law enforcement firsthand. I participated in a National Immigration Forum press call earlier in the year, and I was one speaker uh, among many, but we were all represented there, faith, business, law enforcement. And the idea there was to communicate, you know, I was communicating my own ideas there, but among many who had the same kinds of hopes and aspirations yeah. for immigration in our country. Uh, how, what have been the unexpected uh, benefits from that coalition mm -hmm. that you just mentioned, yep. and any challenges as you put that group together? So um, my favorite part about these events, and it's, it's hard to do it on the phone, but so we'll do events across the country that'll have a pastor, police chief, and business owner. All of them are typically politically or socially conservative. And our assumption is, is usually, well, these folks have worked together before. They know each other working on, you know, X, Y, or Z issue. To an event, the green room, you know, the room behind the stage where people are kind of sitting there, getting ready, drinking their coffee, uh, um, is always the most hilarious place. Because the pastor is looking at the business owner saying, I don't want to talk about a visa program. The business owner is looking at the pastor saying, I don't want to get involved in some sort of a cultural war. And then the, law, the police chief is looking at both of them asking, what am I even doing here? But something incredible happens when they come out and speak to the public is that their messages play off of each other. Because all of a sudden, the pastor is able to speak to the values framework behind the need for immigration reform next to the business owner who can speak about their immigrant workforce as fellow parishioners, friends of their community, next to the police chief who is saying, I just want to keep everybody safe. So the issue of immigration and immigration reform is wound into the conversation, but it's communicated in really unique and powerful ways. So what happens is that news article from that, from that event has three different messengers, three different messages that in essence create a, a choir, if you will, of what used to be known as unlikely voices, but I think now we're seen as likely voices of saying, you know what? I hold the Bible, I wear a badge, I own a business, I want a common sense solution. Let's explore those three groups sure. uh, real quick. So uh, you mentioned uh, <clears throat> pastors or faith leaders, and I know that this cuts across, uh, you're going to be speaking tomorrow at a Jewish synagogue in mm -hmm. Portland, but I want to talk about evangelical Christians for just a moment. Um, Self-described evangelical Christians, as you know, voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Um, and yet what you're finding is that among many of those mm -hmm. same self-described evangelical leaders, Christian leaders, you're finding a receptive audience right. around smart, uh, compassionate, grace-filled immigration reform. Yeah. Why is that? Why do, you, why do you see support mm -hmm. for Trump in the polls, and yet you're finding some traction on immigration? So we've been working with the, um, the conservative evangelical community since 2011, 2012. Um, and what we've learned is that pastors, they don't want to talk about policy, about immigration policy. They certainly don't want to be in the business of talking about the politics of immigration. 
but they want to be able to talk about is why it is important from a scriptural basis to care for the stranger. Why it is important from the perspective of Christ, uh, scripture to uh, um, keep families together. Why immigration uh, is a question of life. Um, so for us as an advocacy organization, we needed to understand what was the, the kind of the comfort zone. Um, and so we built a level of trust, and more than that, on our own part, we've built a level of understanding. So we get to the, the election in 2016, and I would say, you know, at least half of uh, the folks that we work with in the faith community, if not more, certainly, ended up voting for President Trump. And they would say, you know, I, I you know, voted for President Trump on X, for X, Y, and Z reason, but I disagree with him on the question of immigration. Now, over the course of 2017, in the first year of the administration, with the exception maybe of the travel ban and other kind of high-profile issues, it was hard for a pastor at a national or local level to take a public position and kind of challenging the administration. I think as we went through the summer and into the fall, and it became more clear what the consequences of the administration's action around immigration was going to be, you found the faith community, we found the faith community more willing to engage in the, in the debate. So now... You know, as we're making a push for uh, Fix for Dreamers, you have evangelical leadership from the most conservative to the most liberal. Drop some names. Uh, Russ Moore, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, Sam Rodriguez, head of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, Bill Hybels from Willow Creek. Um, Beth Moore tonight uh, uh, was part of a video speaking to, uh, reading uh, Matthew 25. Um, you know, Johnny Moore, who was the president's principal evangelical advisor. Uh, so we've seen this building of kind of support for dreamers from the conservative evangelical community um, that gets beyond politics. And I think from our perspective, you know, immigration isn't an economic issue, it's a social issue. And that's why I think the faith community is increasingly important. Let's talk about badges. Sure. Why would local law enforcement interested in this topic, and then why would they come alongside you mm -hmm. for smart, rational immigration reform? So one of the people we've gotten to know is um, Art Acevedo. He is the chief of police in Houston. Uh, he is a, his history is a, he's a his family where came from Cuba as refugees. Um, grew up, uh, enlisted in the army, uh, got injured, had to, to leave the army, um, was chief of police in Austin before he, I'd say in the last two or three years, got the job in Houston. The administration comes into place, they begin to kind of beat the drum on sanctuary cities and really cracking down. Art Acevedo says publicly, he's seen the uh, rate of sexual assaults in the Latino community drop 34%, while it stayed flat or increased in other communities. And he says the only reason that's the case is because the Latino community in Houston is afraid of local law enforcement. So this is all wrapped up into the debate around sanctuary cities. Um, and whether or not local law enforcement should be enforcing immigration law. So I completely understand the importance of sanctuary for the immigrant community, the importance of feeling safe and secure. But I also understand how the term sanctuary uh, uh, rattles people who are outside of a city or outside the immigrant community. So the way that we look at this is that I don't want to live in a sanctuary city, I want to live in a safe city. A safe city is where every cop on the corner can do their job and serve and protect everybody. 
And the only reason, the only way they can do that is they're, if they're protect, if they're trusted by everybody. So the reason, and this is very similar to our work with the faith community, is that we spent the time getting to know law enforcement. We spent the time of sitting down across the table with Republican sheriffs to Republican attorneys general to Democrats and trying to understand why do they care about this issue. And then making sure that we as an organization, me as a leader, were respectful of that perspective and then modulating our policy perspective, policy language and our personal language uh, to, again, meet people where they are but just not leave them there. Uh, I just want to make it very clear for our audience. Um, what is the problem or challenge when local law enforcement mm. has to enforce immigration law? Sure. What, what, just brass tacks. So brass tacks is that in Houston, if a Houston police officer is seen as enforcing immigration law, a victim of a crime from sexual assault to uh, violent or to uh, uh, robbery, they're not going to report that crime. That means that not only is the immigrant community less safe because they will be preyed upon, but the entirety of that community or city is less safe. So that's why we believe strongly that there should be a separation of powers between federal immigration enforcement done by the federal government and local law enforcement uh, serving and protecting their community. So we've got um, Bibles and badges, mm -hmm. businesses. Businesses. What's the business case for smart immigration? Um, so the easy answer here is that the, the, the case for, the business case for immigration reform is access to a skilled, thriving workforce uh, um, and or, you know, for example, in 2015, 28% uh, of businesses in the U.S. was started by uh, immigrants or you know, 40% of Fortune 500 uh, companies were started by immigrants or children of immigrants. Those are great talking points, right? You sit there, yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. But there are also terrible talking points. Because I know that, you know, if I am worried I'm going to lose my job, if I'm worried that, uh, you know, somebody's going to compete for my job at a lower wage or my job's going to go to another country, I hear that talking point and I think, gosh darn it, that immigrant is going to, I don't care if they started 28% of jobs or businesses. They're going to take my job. So that's why I think from a business perspective, it is really important to speak, uh, that business leaders are speaking to the immigrant workforce as a part of their community. And it's not just somebody who works at a business, but somebody who is part of the PTA, you know, going to church, and really trying to humanize the immigrant workforce beyond just being kind of a cog in the wheel. Um, and I think we have a tendency to fall into that trap, <clears throat> particularly in the economic perspective of just quoting statistics. So since you, you kind of dived in a little <clears throat> bit here, so one of the arguments uh, for more strict immigration mm -hmm. uh, policy and enforcement is the notion economically that uh, immigrants uh, come to the United States, they take jobs that would otherwise go to U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. In the process, they drive wages lower, and then they also tax our economic social structures, um, education, health care. Uh, is there any truth in that? Mm -hmm. If there is, what is it? How would you respond to that? So um, there's a little bit of truth in that. Uh, so the National Academy of Science in 2015 uh, released a big report, and we're talking like a 500-page big report, uh, that went through a range of social science and economic data. And what they found is that at the higher skill end of the job spectrum, the impact was positive. There's a positive impact of immigrants on wages and job creation. 
the lower end of the, the skill spectrum, there was a small, we're talking less than 2% wage impact in the short term. Over 5, 10, 15 years, that turns around quite quickly. Um, so it's dishonest for me to say there's no impact. Um, the challenge here is, okay, how do you paint the picture of that short-term negative impact into a longer-term positive impact? And that's where we really try to paint the picture of communities being revitalized because of immigrant businesses, uh, uh, changing demographics of our workforce, and frankly, the shrinking of the U.S. population, um, but also just acknowledging that it's a real challenge. And I think if, as advocates, we skip over that challenge, um, we're, we're, not, we're, we're losing an audience. We're losing our audience. So in today's uh, simplistic uh, rhetoric that we hear so often, one is either for open borders and unlimited amnesty, or one is for mass deportation, the border wall, and severe limits on legal immigration. Are these two groups oversimplified? In other words, is there a place for someone who is, say, empathetic to the plight of dreamers mm -hmm. and for increased border security and law enforcement? Where is the middle on this issue? So I think that the um, American public grapples with the question of immigrants and immigration through three core anxieties. And those core anxieties are culture, uh, security, and economy. The cultural question is, for many people, is are immigrants integrating or are they isolating? The security question is, are immigrants threats or protectors? And the economic question is, are immigrants giving or taking? from the country. So what we try to do as an organization in all of our work is answer one or more of those questions and make the case that immigrants, for example, are protecting our nation as members of armed services, uh, giving back to our nation as job creators, uh, and ultimately integrating as Americans. But then the question is, uh, then really the, the core of this is, okay, how do you get to a compromise? I think that there is a compromise to be found that balances the security concerns with the needs to be compassionate or the desire to be compassionate. And um, the way that we've been thinking about this is that you know, how do we craft policy solutions that allow us to be both a nation of laws and a nation of grace? Having a secure border that allows people to come in here, come to the US legally, but then also integrate and become Americans. Uh, law and grace. Mm -hmm. Those are some interesting themes, aren't they? Um, what? So I was, as I mentioned, I was in D.C. last week, and I uh, had the privilege of meeting with six uh, House members from the state of Washington, both of our, our senators, and had a lot of conversations with staffers and policy mm -hmm. uh, members as well, particularly about the DACA. And uh, I think that there's really bipartisan support for a fix to DACA and um, some solution to, to the Dreamer issue. But as we know, this issue is being used as a political football of right. sorts uh, as Congress negotiates on a variety of other very complex issues. We also know that we're only days, weeks away from uh, the March 5th deadline right. for the uh, DACA uh, protection to go away mm -hmm. via administration. Um, where where is this issue going to go? I'm going to ask you to get out your uh, political crystal ball here. Uh -huh. 
What do the next several weeks yep. look like as we get closer to March 5th? And how do you handicap whether or not Congress is really going to be able to get this done? <clears throat> so I think that uh, President Trump has an opportunity to do something that previous administrations have failed. Uh, neither President Obama nor Bush were able to fix the immigration system in a big way or in a, in a discreet way. So President Trump can make history. Uh, his challenge is going to be to find the 60 votes in the Senate to get a bill through the Senate and 218 in the House. And he has till March 5th to do that. So our public position is by March 5th, President Trump can make history and sign a deal that protects dreamers in our border, or through his authority, he can be signing off on the detention and deportation of nearly a million dreamers. And that in you know, Washington, D.C., blunt political terms, is as close to a clear question you can provide. Which, when you reach a moment of clarity, uh, and it's a so, so A-B, that's a, typically a good thing. So how does this all play out? So this evening, um, at 5.30, around 5.30, uh, Senate leader Mitch McConnell filed a motion to proceed on a what's known as a shell bill. And this is a bill that will be amended over the next week or two weeks uh, to find a compromise in the Senate. I think we'll go from an initial proposal that balances dreamers and border to something wider, which the president would like to see dreamers, border, limits to family immigration, elimination of the diversity visa. The left or even moderate Republicans would like to see more expansive treatments of dreamers in other parts of the community. So we'll go from skinny to wide. I don't think we'll get to 60 on something wide, and then we'll end up summing back on skinny. And hopefully a solution that balances dreamers and border security. That will go through this week, then they'll go on a recess, and they'll come back for two weeks before we get to March 5th. Then we move to the House. How does that really all play out? Um, I think that it's important that we are telling our stories, whether from an institutional perspective or a personal perspective, of what does it mean to be you know, a dreamer or a DACA recipient as well as a friend or a family member of one or a, a, a community member with one, uh, with a, a DACA recipient. Um, you know, speak to the needs for compassionate but smart security. Um, those are the ways that this is going to, to be understood by the, the public. Um, and ultimately, I think we're going to go through a lot of peaks and valleys over the next three or four weeks. And the closer we get to March 5th, the more clear we want to make it to policymakers that Republicans in particular have a huge opportunity to make history in one direction or the other. So it's impossible to talk about uh, our country's divide on immigration without talking about President Trump. Mm -hmm. um, some have claimed that the president is cultivating irrational fears about immigrant populations in order to further his particular policy objectives. For instance, the president is known for using powerful anecdotes mm -hmm. uh, in descriptive language when telling his stories about the dangers of illegal immigration, particularly around crime. How does President Trump's language and storytelling shape our cultural attitudes on both sides of this debate? I think what... Um so there's an upside and a downside to the way that President Trump talks about uh, uh, this issue. Now the downside is hopefully pretty obvious. You know, in a State of the Union, uh, when he couches his eight, ten minutes of uh, section on immigration, it's about 90% about MS-13 
you know, the, the uh, uh, Central American gang. Um, so he, by and large, used the State of the Union to infer that immigrants are likely to, if not members of MS-13, and to instill a level of fear. The upside of what he's doing is that more people than ever are paying attention to this issue, and they're asking questions of what's real and what's not. And they're going to their pastor, their police chief, their business owner, their community leader, and asking for help in navigating this this question. So this afternoon, um, so another one of the coalitions we've built out is called Veterans for New Americans. Again, kind of that threats are protectors. And uh, we had met two young men uh, um, who are looking to enlist in the armed services through the MAVNI program. The MAVNI program, in essence, is, that, is a program within the armed forces where if you have a special skill, regardless of immigration status, they'll take you. And you get to adjust your status. So these two young men are DACA recipients and waiting to enlist through the MAVNI program. And they're just waiting, really, for their, their orders. Uh, and Jake Tapper, he had this amazing intro uh, to paraphrase. And he said, President Trump likes to tell us a lot of scary stories about immigrants. We thought, we, we thought you'd like to hear a couple of stories about some amazing young men who are looking to enlist in the Army. So, you know, President Trump, for all of the fear that he instills, I think he also motivates uh, a lot of people, not just the Jake Tappers, but, you know, the, 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 the conservative pastors, the Republican sheriffs, the CEOs who, you know, funded his campaign to say, you know what, that's not, that's not what, I, what I signed up for. So in the President's State of the Union address, he laid out essentially four components mm -hmm. of a piece of legislation that he would be supportive of or sign. Um, if I can remember them off the top of my head, they include um, a path to citizenship for some 1.8 million dreamers, right. uh, the wall, yep. uh, to use his term, uh, the end of family migration, or as he calls it, chain migration, mm -hmm. and the end to diversity lotteries or um, uh, visa lotteries, right. as he called it. Um, Speak to each one of those. Sure. Um, and as you do, uh, what what is smart mm -hmm. about each one of those provisions, mm -hmm. and what is maybe uh, less smart or more nearsighted about each of those? So you're asking me to both agree and disagree with yes, the president. <laughs> At a liberal arts institution, we teach our students to hold two competing thoughts simultaneously. So. Oh man, I didn't sign up for this. Um, <laughs> all right. Do I have to give a negative on the dreamer part? That would be kind of no, mean. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, a citizenship for 1.8 million uh, dreamers. And the idea there of kind of how they got to the 1.8 million is that it's the 800,000 who have applied and received DACA protection, plus they surmise that there are a million others who were eligible. I think it was based on a 2012 uh, entry date, I believe. Is that right? Uh, so that's the quick version, and that's great. I mean, ideally it should be more, you know, in essence you should be able to come to the country instead of 2012, say 2015, uh, in order to, to uh, uh, address a larger dreamer population. But 1.8 is a solid number. Border security. So the president is looking for $25 billion to be put into, quote, a trust fund. Billion. Billion. Yeah. Um, we don't think a wall across the entire U.S.-Mexico border is smart security. Um, but 
we think that there are parts of the U.S.-Mexico border that do need increased security. So, for example, the majority of drugs, guns, and money are smuggled through ports of entry. So let's invest in ports of entry, make sure that they have the infrastructure and the boots on the ground to monitor and inspect the packages that come through. Uh, in between ports of entry, you, have, you need technology. And then in certain places, you need infrastructure, whether that's a fence or a wall. So that's a mix of good and bad. Chain mi fa family migration. So this is easily the thorniest part of the immigration debate. <clears throat> Currently, uh, about 65% of, of immigrants to the U.S. come through family immigration. You know, I, again, I, I said earlier, 28% of businesses in 2015 were started by immigrants. I would argue pretty strenuously that a very large number of those businesses were successful because of their family networks that came to the U.S. Um, the, uh, the, the administration would like to see a shrinking of the number and the types of individuals that an individual, that a U.S. citizen or LPR can sponsor. LPR. Legal permanent residence. In essence, somebody who has a green card. Right now, there are only two categories of family immigration. One is, so I'm here, I have a green card. I can sponsor my spouse, my uh, uh, um, minor children, um, my parents, and my siblings. That's it. There's no ability to sponsor aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. Um, so that is, you know, it's very important that we understand what the, 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 the parameters are that exist. Some parts, some members of Congress would like to say, say it, uh, have it that if I'm a dreamer, I go on to get legal status and become a citizen, that I'm not allowed to sponsor anybody else, even if I'm a U.S. citizen. So I think that, number one, it would run into constitutional challenges. Number two, I think that really cuts against our values as a country. So that's a, uh, 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 the version or my, my take on the family migration question. Diversity visas, this is a program that allows, <clears throat> that um, allocates 50,000 visas uh, to underrepresented countries to the U.S. Those, by and large, are countries from Eastern Europe or Africa. An individual is able to apply uh, for the, those visas uh, in a lottery system, but they go through a strenuous background check and have to meet certain educational uh, uh, backgrounds. I think that's a program that should be protected. Um, I think we're willing to have a conversation of how do you reallocate those visas to address those underrepresented countries, perhaps based on more of a, a mix of family and, and merit. Um, but, I mean, I think that, you know, frankly, our brothers and sisters from Africa make the U.S. a much better place. Uh, um, and, you know, eliminating that kind of a program, I'm not sure, I don't think it does anything to advance our national interests. So, uh, maybe as a summary statement then, what is the Nirani immigration Mm -hmm. Huh, let's see. <clears throat> Three buckets. Um, number one, for the undocumented population. So there are about 11 million immigrants here who are undocumented. I think, and whether they're dreamers or adults, I think they should be able to go through a process that includes a criminal background check, a fine, uh, 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 a proof that they are learning English, and eventually get to permanent residence and citizenship. I think that when it comes to enforcement, we need to have an enforcement system that is risk-based, like ports of entry, but also treats people humanely and compassionately. Um, and there are a lot of details, particularly on the interior. 
Um, but by all means, we need an enforcement system. I mean, that's part of having a country. The hardest part about all this is legal, immigra legal immigration. And this is where I think is where I, the, I believe that the faith community plays such an outsized role, such an important role. Because the debate, I don't think, is about whether or not the undocumented should get a path to citizenship. That's not really the issue. The issue is whether or not we, want, we as a nation want immigrants to continue to come to the US. Uh, and that is based both on how do you establish a legal immigration system that can fluctuate according to our needs, but at our core, who are we as a country? And I think the more that we're able to talk about immigrants and refugees as members of our families and of our communities, it helps the public understand that immigrants are more than business owners or fellow, fellow workers, but they are part of the social fabric. Uh, earlier today, you and I talked a little bit about the math of immigration and specifically some things that we're hearing the Trump administration say as it relates to the 1.8 mm -hmm. and then the overall goals for immigration. And you said, be careful when you do the math mm -hmm. because it could mask what you think is uh, a larger uh, goal of the administration, which is to, as you've just said, suppress legal immigration. Sure. How does that math work? Sure. So the Los Angeles Times over the weekend had a great article. Um, and the headline of the article said, administration floats a plan. It, they said it like this. Administration floats a plan to keep legal immigration at the same levels and not cut it. Um, but when you read down the article, the article says that the 1.8 million for uh, green cards for DACA recipients is taken out of existing family immigration programs and the diversity visas uh, and, and reducing the backlog of, of people who are in the system already. And they say after about 12 or 13 years to reduce the backlog, fill in those 1.8 million DACA recipients who are already here and contributing, Unless Congress passes legislation, numbers will plummet. So in order to address an existing need of people who are already here, already in the system, the administration would like to decrease existing levels of legal immigration and then make sure that they're low unless Congress was to fix the system. So for the administration to say that they don't want to cut legal immigration is just not true. Um, and that's why I think that we have to, as we're going through the next few weeks, um, we have to be really cognizant of the details. Great. Okay, this is your one question warning. Um, so after this question, I'm going to turn it to the audience. So uh, have your questions ready. So we have some students who are here, um, all of whom, uh, regardless of where they may stand on these very particular issues, I'm sure are very grateful for your advocacy work and what you're doing. And um, I know that we have students here who would love to do their own advocacy, mm -hmm. either on this issue or a number of other issues. What advice and counsel would you give to students who are interested in advocacy work? And uh, you know, what would be a couple of lessons that you would mm -hmm. impart to these folks? So um, <clears throat> when I was getting in kind of my, my career started, I um, was fortunate enough to find great mentors who gave me responsibility let me make mistakes, uh, and help me not make the same mistake again. Um, so number one, find good mentors. Uh, number two, in whatever role that you end up in, take opportunities to learn to improve your communication skills. Written, spoke, spoken. I gotta say, it's like whoever we hire, the most important thing that we're looking for is communication skills. 
particularly in advocacy as an information industry. How you communicate information is foundational. Um, and then third, don't be afraid of getting into issues that you don't know anything about. Um, I mean, I came into immigration, and you know, when I applied for the job to run the statewide immigration coalition in Massachusetts, I mean, I told the board, I said, I don't know anything about immigration policy. Now, some of you after tonight may say, well, you still don't. Um, but I said, you know what? There's two things that I do know how to do. One is to organize coalitions, and two is to fundraise. And those are communications-based skills that I was fortunate enough to be able to apply to this issue that is incredibly important. So that's that would be my advice, is that find mentors, improve your communication skills, and you know, don't be afraid of what you don't know. So two things that give me hope. And I'll, um, one is the National Immigration Forum and our strategy provides me the incredible opportunity to talk to people and become friends with people that I never would have imagined. Um, and that means that every single day, practically, I will have a conversation with someone that leads me to, leads me to a more hopeful place. That as a country, we're going to figure this out. Um, the second item that gives me hope is that I think that the students, whether it's here at Whitworth or any campus across the country that are engaged in this question, um, are doing more than explaining this, this issue to leadership. Doing more than holding a rally. Uh, doing more than you know, speaking to the press. Rather, what students are doing, they're, they're changing the institution. Because it's the institution that lives beyond our time. You know? I went to Cal for only eight years. No, no I went there four years. Uh, um, I went to BU School of Public Health for two years. And I like to think, looking back, there are maybe one or two things that I did that changed those institutions a little bit. And I think that all of us in this room, if we want to go to Whitworth, we want to be able to look back and say, you know what? I helped make Whitworth a better place. Um, when it comes to this issue. And I just, you know, I can't help to be, but to be hopeful about that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Again, you have spent the entire day with us today. So appreciate it. Would you join me in thanking Ali? Thank you. Thank you.